Good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, I want to kick off this morning uh, with a little call and response directly out of Psalm 118. It is one of my uh, favorite call and response uh, activities, I guess you could say. Um, and so uh, repeat after me. You guys ready? Okay. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, we're going to warm up the vocal cords this morning. You ready? Today is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. One more time because I don't think it's there. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Can you feel it wake up? Can you, are, you, are you with me? Um, I, I love that passage because it is, no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter what's going on in the world around you, that is true. That can be true. And if it's not true, it's a good reality to align our hearts with. Amen? That doesn't dismiss hardship. It doesn't dismiss difficulty. If anything, it means that, hey, we're aware that a very good and sovereign king is also very aware of what we're walking through and what we're, we're operating in. And so the older I get, the more amazed I am at how fast life happens, right? And, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not really an old man, so I'm kind of like, things keep speeding up. It's Thanksgiving. How is it Thanksgiving next week? I feel like every time something like this comes around, I'm, I'm shocked more and more at how it just kind of sneaks up on me, right? You know, and I love these little, like, these, these feasts, so to speak. The Old Testament is full of feasts and celebration, time to just pause and anchor our hearts in who God is. And Thanksgiving is definitely one of those opportunities, right? So Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then we see Easter. Like, there are these different holidays where sometimes people will be like, ah, it's just commercialized. No, it's not. There's a beautiful opportunity to lean in to who Jesus is for us during these seasons. And so um, they do, though, sneak up on us. And, and I think the more that I find that these things sneak up on me, the more I realize I need to take it seriously and to take a breath and align my heart with God and be intentionally thankful. Right? Like if you're in a season right now where you're like, I can't believe it's almost Thanksgiving. That's a sign that you really need to enter into Thanksgiving. And so, and I'm speaking to myself here, all right? There's a mirror on the front row that I'm preaching to. So this is a, 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 I've learned that there is a fine line between being driven and being called. And they can get convoluted sometimes. We've talked about this before, but maybe if you're not familiar with this principle, then I want to share it with you this morning because I think it can change your life. I hope that it will. And if you already are familiar with it, then I hope that it's a reminder because I need it myself. See, to be driven is to be fear-based. You're talking about someone that's like high ambition. I'm, I, I'm a driven person. Like some people might even say, I'm a driven person, but I would reject that. 
Because to be driven is to be driven by fear. It's fear-based. It's motivated by the pride of achievement or the shame of failure. And it's a slave mentality that's tormented by comparison and striving to achieve a status that is always out of reach. And if you do attain it, that pride is just going to go before the fall. And you will find yourself waffling back and forth on this pride-shame spectrum. And the ruler of this world, who is also our enemy, torments us in that. You see, cattle are driven. A cowboy gets behind them, he cracks a whip in order to get them to go where he wants them to go, and they're motivated by a fear of what's behind them. They just want to get away from the whip, that a wolf is at the door. i got to make it happen, or else. The cattle don't care about the heart of the cowboy. They don't want to be near the cowboy. They want to get away from the cowboy. They're just afraid of him as they drive that cattle forward. And you, cow, you can drive cattle off of a cliff. They just want to get away. They're not concerned about where they're going as much because it's just blind, I got to go somewhere, rat race. So that cowboy may actually have good in mind for the cattle, but the relationship isn't the top priority. The task at hand is. And a lot of people have a relationship with God this way. So now compare that with the sheep, <laughs> right? You, you know, you can't drive sheep. If you try to drive sheep, if you get behind a flock of sheep and you crack a whip or you come at them on a horse or something, you know what they do? They scatter or they just roll over. They just freeze. They're just like, ah, I'm a sheep. I'm not fast, <laughs> right? Like, this is bad. Not nah, see, nah, nah. All right. <laughs> that was bad. I'm sorry. I can't. You know. <laughs> Dad card. Okay. Um, but the, 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 real, the reality is, is that we as humanity are a lot more like sheep than I think most of us want to let on. Right? Even you battle-tested warriors, you're a lot more like sheep than you might want to believe. You see, this is the, the God of creation doesn't compare us to cattle. He compares us to sheep. See, fear paralyzes sheep. They don't know what to do. Even the toughest battle-tested warriors in our culture who sort of press through those physical environments that are just extremely painful and difficult, they are also the same ones who find themselves paralyzed on the battlefields of family and marriage and don't know what to do and give up. It may look differently, but fear paralyzes. So you can't drive sheep you got to lead them. you got to get in front of them, and you got to call them to yourself. John 10, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And in verse 27 and 28 of John 10, he says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How comforting is that? You see, Jesus doesn't drive us. He calls us. And so to be called is to be motivated by the love of God. It's the desire to be where he is, to go where he's going, to love what he loves, and to be near and close to him throughout the process. That's why his staff and his rod, they 
comfort us. Because his nearness, his presence, his word is our ultimate desire and our ultimate motivator. It's not just the end, it is the means. And the means is the end. And it's not about just one day in the future, it's now. It's almost as if this whole thing is about relationship or something. Because it is. And so as I've paused to pray this week about what I'm most thankful for, and, and, and I think about it, honestly, the thing that I'm most thankful for, the thing that comes to my heart and my mind is honestly heaven. The thing I'm most thankful for is heaven. Now, you might have thought I was going to say Jesus, right? Like, what are you most thankful for? Jesus, right? Sunday school answer. That's a good one. And I am. Because Jesus is what makes heaven heavenly. Let me say that again. Jesus is what makes heaven heavenly. And see, heaven is wherever Jesus is. Like, if, he's, if Jesus is on the earth, then the kingdom of heaven has come close to you on earth. Right? Because where the king is, there is also the kingdom. I want you to get this principle. Where the king is, there is also the kingdom. That's going to make a lot of sense of the way Jesus talked in the New Testament. And so I want you to understand this because there's a lot of confusion surrounding what heaven is and is not in our culture. So the most, people, um, most people think of heaven as this spiritual wispy place that's above the clouds. But that's not really how the Bible even talks about heaven, really. You see, when the Bible talks about heaven, it, it, it speaks about it in, in two ways. One way is known as the intermediary state. Anybody ever heard of that term, the intermedi- intermediary state? I'm going to give you some uh, some actual information on what heaven is instead of what the history channel says, okay? So this is what scripture talks about, and it's known as, theologians call this the intermediary state. It's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 1 when he's faced with a lot of death threats and, and he's, his life is on the line, and not only was he not afraid to die, he makes it clear in Philippians 1 that it is far better to depart and be with Christ For him, it's better. That's gain. Like, he wants that. However, it was his love for the church that compelled him to labor on even upon the earth. But he's going, I want to die and go and be with Jesus. Face-to-face scenario. So that's often, like, he's talking about this out-of-body experience where, where our souls go to be present with Jesus in the spiritual realm, this heavenly spiritual realm, but that's only a temporary situation. See, that's what most people think of when they think of heaven, right? This out-of-body experience in, in God, wispy place, kittens are flying, I don't know, like all kinds of stuff. That's actually not what's described in Scripture. And even that intermediary space where we are with God in that out-of-body experience for a while, it's only temporary. Because it's not the eternal end goal. To go and be with Jesus is heavenly, but it's not ultimately what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of heaven. Because the heaven that the scriptures are speaking of most of the time is the eternal state of redemption and the new creation, the physical heaven combined, merging, new creation of heaven and earth. When King Jesus physically returns and we're given new resurrected and glorified bodies. This is what the Bible talks about when it's talking about heaven. Heaven and earth will be remade and united again under the lordship of King Jesus. 
like it was in the Garden of Eden. That was a merging, that was a, a combination of heaven and earth in the Garden of Eden. And when we were kicked out, there was a divide between heaven and earth. And so the new creation is where God Almighty brings heaven and earth back together again. United under the lordship of King Jesus. Face to face with the one who makes heaven so heavenly in the new Eden, in the new Jerusalem, in the new creation, in heaven on earth. And so the entire point of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring about a reunification of heaven and earth. Remember, God created heaven and earth as one. This this place in in the garden, and, and God walked perfectly in intimacy with Adam and Eve. When sin entered the world, that relationship was broken, and heaven and earth was separated, and humanity and the earthly realm over which we were given dominion fell into this sinful, corrupt state of death. And even though it was originally created for eternal life, what we see is that it is twisted into something that it was never originally designed to be. Any honest observation of this world will show you that but God wasn't satisfied to leave creation in this state of groaning and enslavement and bondage to death and sin and so God became a man heaven broke into our circumstances through the incarnation of the creator king God became a man The kingdom came near as the divine creator king himself joined with humanity and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die and then he conquered death in the grave, the very thing that separates heaven and earth. He conquered it through the resurrection, physical resurrection from the grave, ascending into heaven. You know that Jesus right now isn't in some like wispy form? He's physical. In heaven. What? There's power in this. And he paves the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life in intimate relationship with him that doesn't just start one day when we die or even when he returns, but it begins the moment we place our faith and hope in what he's done for us because the veil was split. Now, We still live in what's called the already, not yet. We live in the overlap. We live in a time where we have experiences with him on on an intimate spiritual level, and yet, not fully. Because that's to come with the return. But even now, even now, heaven is invading the earth. Even now, heaven invades the earth through through you. His grace-bought and spirit-filled people. You see, our commission is to make more spirit-filled, born-again disciples. This is what we do. This is what we're called to do. Not just rule followers, but lovers of God in and through whom Jesus reigns in their hearts, even upon the earth. This is the kind of kingdom inauguration that began with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. See, that's why the Bible actually refers to the entire period between Christ's ascension and his return, which is the period we're in right now. The Bible talks about that whole time frame as the last days. Guess what, guys? 
We've been in the last days for almost 2,000 years now. I hear people all the time, well, you think we're in the last days yet? Yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty sure. We've been here for a while. It doesn't mean things aren't ramping up, right? But it does mean that there's something extremely significant about the time in which we have been born and called. So this is why we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer for heaven to invade earth in and through his church. It's his spirit-filled, called-of-God flock, his sheep who hear his voice and are called to draw near to their shepherd. Even now, even in the presence of our enemies, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with you. So heaven isn't just our one-day hope in a distant future. Our hope is alive now because the king of heaven is alive now. And so, of course, there is that day that will come where it breaks out in the full physical consummation, of the new creation, but until then, we've been given a very real and very heavenly access to him to go behind the veil into his heavenly presence, right? And so this is what I'm most thankful for. That's what I'm most thankful for. Our right now hope of heaven, right now, even in the midst of the darkness, I'm thankful for the light. But we lose sight of this, man. We get so caught up in the goings-on of the fallen world and the enemy and all this stuff that we lose sight of the table of fellowship. That he's just saying, I've made a place for you to pull up and to partner and to take part and to commune. And so in chapter 12 here, um, for the rest of our time, what what I want to do here is I want to talk about leaning into our present hope of heaven. Like even now and today. And that's that's what 1 Corinthians 13 has actually all been talking about. And, And chapter 12 before it. Um, The Apostle Paul's been talking about the gifts of the Spirit, which are these unique ways in which the Holy Spirit himself manifests in and through individuals within the church for the encouragement of the church, whose mission is the Great Commission, right? And so because of the cross, this real access uh, to God's indwelling presence and his power is actually available to us. And so here we're told in these chapters that these manifestations are called gifts of the Spirit. And so in chapter 13, Paul kind of just goes off on the fundamental preeminence of love in exercising these gifts or these manifestations of his Spirit for the encouragement of the church. And he even goes off in this detail for what God's love is actually all about because to attempt to exercise the gifts without love, what we see is that it's not only useless and worthless, it's actually dangerous. But instead of saying, don't do it, he simply says, pursue love. Right? Pursue the love of God and pursue God's love for one another. Don't let misuse lead to disuse. Receive grace and keep going. This is who we are as his people. And so the way forward is to fix our eyes on our heavenly living hope. And so now there's this old warning. You may be familiar with it. It's an old saying that says uh, not to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that before? I've had people quote that scripture to me. That's not scripture. It's that warning where it's like, oh, I don't know, you know, we got to, I don't know where it is in the Bible, but you know, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. That's not in the Bible anywhere, okay? Maybe like second hallucinations. (laughs) Is it that joke again? Ah, Anyway, but this is like, the idea here, though, is actually completely antithetical to the actual gospel 
that we have, which is to fix our eyes on heaven, to walk by faith and not by sight, to be heavenly minded. In fact, and here's what I want you to get this morning, is that the truth is the only way we can be of any earthly good is if we're truly and continually heavenly minded, which means leaning into the whispers of heaven even now. And so that's what I want you to get this morning. That the only way that we can be of any earthly good is if we are truly and continually heavenly minded, which means leaning into the whispers of heaven even now. Say whispers. So what does that look like? And how do we lean into the whispers of heaven? What does that even mean? How do we hear the voice of our good shepherd? Look with me at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. We're going to walk through the rest of chapter 13, um, and the first verse of chapter 14. So turn with me. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, okay? So verse 8 says this. Love never ends. So again, he's emphasizing the preeminence of love, which is what the whole chapter has been about. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So he's talking about gifts of the Spirit that he's just listed in the past chapter and a half. He's been talking about these. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So here he lists these spiritual gifts and he calls them partial. And he says that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So what's he talking about? Like what is this perfect that he's referring to here that is to come? And what is it about the gifts of the Spirit that are partial? Let's keep reading. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So he's talking about growing and maturing in an awareness and understanding. He's talking about the experience. He's comparing the experience of being a child where you're limited in your understanding. But as you grow and mature, you become more aware as things are revealed to us. Right? And so verse 12. For now, now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. So, so very sim- similar. Now it's dimly. It's partial. There's a limit. There's some things I'm unaware of. But then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. Even as I have been fully known. So for now, there's this partial knowing. There seems to be a limit of some kind, like things are kind of cloudy and dim. But, but then things will be perfect. Then we'll be face to face. Now it's partial, but then when the perfect comes, when we're face to face, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In other words, he fully knows you, but you don't fully know him yet. He's talking about that new creation. He's talking about that consummation of the kingdom. He's talking about the physical return of Christ upon the earth and the consummation of his kingdom in fullness, face to face. See, when that happens, we will have no need of spiritual gifts. They're going to cease. 
Think about it. The whole point of the gifts are that they are extraordinary manifestations of his spirit breaking through in this world. That's what they are. But then, then, when we're face to face, there's no limitations to break through. It'll be an ever-increasing surge of his love and revelation like a torrent of glory ever higher and up ever deeper and in, into the infinite goodness and glory of the eternal God without limit. You cannot comprehend this because it is way bigger than you can imagine. Forever diving deeper and delving into the goodness and glory of an infinite God. Richard Baxter is a guy, one of those old school guys. When I say old school, I mean like 1650. Um, he wrote a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And I got an excerpt from it here. This is what he says. He says, Thus there will be no more prayer, because there will be, more, there will be no more necessity, only the full enjoyment of what we prayed for. We will not need to fast, weep, and watch anymore, being out of the reach of sin and temptations. Nor will we need instruction and exhortation. Preaching is done. Ministry ceases. The sacraments are now past their use. The laborers are called in because the harvest is gathered. The tares are burnt and the work is done. The unregenerate are past hope. The saints are past fear forever. And saints means Christian. Just any grace-bought, spirit-filled Christian. You're a saint, according to the Bible. The rest contains a perfect freedom from all the evils that accompanied us through our course in this world. For nothing enters heaven that defiles or is unclean. Doubtless, there's no such thing as grief and sorrow there. Nor is there such a thing as a pale face, feeble joints, languishing sickness, groaning fears, consuming cares, or whatever deserves the name of evil. A gale of groans and a stream of tears will accompany us to the very gates. And there they will bid us farewell forever. Our sorrow will be turned into joy and no one will take our joy from us. So we get glimpses of this even now, right? But it's partial. Paul's pointing us to the eternal, the excellent way of love that never ends, that we get even glimpses of now. And that's from that love that we pursue. That's where the gifts of his spirit manifest and flow in and through us. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. When you cultivate those three things in your life, which is what happens through the process of sanctification or spiritual maturity as you get to know him, what gets cultivated in your life? Faith, hope, and love. Those three things. Because why? It's preparing you for eternity. These three but the greatest of these is love. Now, I mentioned before that there have been actually efforts to sort of downplay the significance of the gifts of the Spirit or to even say that they've ceased entirely. This is called cessationism. It's a belief that the spiritual gifts have actually ceased. And so this passage here in 1 Corinthians 13 is the primary, if not the only, real passage that they look to for support. Okay? So even though this passage clearly... I. I think it's very clear that it proves that the gifts continue until Christ's return. 
This belief came to prominence about 200 years ago when, an, uh, when academia began to sort of ridicule anything having to do with the supernatural. It was around the same time Darwinism and evolution began to replace biblical creation, and any conception of the supernatural was viewed as kind of archaic and silly within academia or scholasticism or education. So the scientific method and skepticism became the faith model for even um, academic circles, uh, and it overflowed into things like seminaries and divinity schools who then tried to follow suit. We see, we see this at places like Harvard, at places like Oxford. There are these types, many of you may not know that they started as places to learn the Bible. And so miracles, signs and wonders, dreams, visions, all began to be downplayed or explained away. Some would go so far as to say that Moses didn't split the Red Sea. It was actually called the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, but the Reed Sea. And it was a marshland that the Israelites were able to wade through. And the Egyptians who were pursuing them couldn't follow them because their chariots would get stuck in the mud. And that's how they crossed the Red Sea. It wasn't a real miracle where it parted the Red Sea and did all this other stuff. It was the Reed Sea. That's a shameful compromise and absolute violence to the actual Hebrew text. And so, but these kinds of compromises became the norm in an effort to garner the respect of an unbelieving world. We didn't cast out a demon. That was epilepsy. I guess, but it's also a demon. Like, that's a thing. And the king has come, and the demons flee. Don't miss that point, because that's the point that matters. And so these compromises came in, and and it shouldn't be surprising then that cessationism became a, a way of viewing Christianity without the supernatural for some of them. And so now to be fair, there is a broad range of cessationists. And when I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not saying sensationists, in fact, I would say the cessationists are reacting to the sensationists. Um, but cease, as in ceasing. And there's a broad range of cessationists. And many who now say that God does, in fact, do miraculous things. So I want to be fair. It's not that they just throw out the miraculous altogether. They simply don't know what, how to categorize them within the framework of spiritual gifts because they say that that's not a thing anymore. Now, some say that all the gifts have ceased, Others say that only the most miraculous gifts have ceased, and they appeal mostly to their own experiences or lack of experiences with the miraculous. But again, the main, if not, I would say, only passage that they point to is this primary passage here in 1 Corinthians 13, and they believe that the perfect is a reference to the canon or the the complete measure of Scripture that was finished once the apostles basically with Revelation, right? The apostles died, Bible's done, and so when they talk about, when they read here, they're talking about the perfect, they think it's a reference to the Bible, the finished Bible. And so for them, that's the complete measure of Scripture that's finished after the death of the last apostle. In other words, Paul wrote this letter before the New Testament was complete, and so when he says the perfect will come, they say he was talking about the finished Bible. So for the cessationists, the Bible is the perfect that is to come. You guys tracking with me? Not the return of Christ and the redemption of all things. They tend to agree with the unbelieving world that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit are then kind of silly, and like children, we need to grow up in our maturity. 
And yet, for all their value or stated value of the word of God, they have prioritized their own experience or lack of experience over the authority of God's word. In fact, I would say verse 12 makes it clear that the perfect to come is not the Bible, but Jesus and the new creation itself, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I don't know about you, but things are still pretty dim for me. And the more I read the Bible, the more I'm like, gosh, I can't wait until you come and meet with us face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Guys, this isn't talking about the Bible. This is talking about the one the Bible points us to and the end state of all things. And so to believe this is talking about the finished New Testament requires some pretty serious theological gymnastics that have more to do with the culture surrounding us than they actually do with the Bible. I would say that pretty blatantly here, okay? I think it's clear. And so literally, it treats the entire chapters of... Gosh, all three of these chapters would be in so many ways irrelevant because it's all focused on spiritual gifts. And so the cessationists would tell you that signs and wonders were given to verify the authority of the apostles, but the apostles weren't the only people in the New Testament performing signs and wonders. That's important. There are a lot of people who did that, lay people. So the signs and wonders that we see throughout Scripture are given to point people to Jesus, not people. And so we stand upon the continuation and availability of these gifts for today, not primarily because of our experience or lack of experience, but because of the infallible God-breathed scriptures that point us to this. We've got to grapple with it. You can't just check out from it because it says earnestly, desire the spiritual gifts. In fact, as we're going to see, it commands us not to despise prophecies. And we're commanded not to forbid the speaking in tongues. What? That makes me uncomfortable. God doesn't care about that. He cares about your flourishing and his kingdom coming. He does care about your comfort. He is the comforter, but not at the expense of what is good and true and holy. Now, my experiences have more than backed up the continued presence of signs and wonders that today mark the church and his great commission. Absolutely. Which is directly in line with God's heart for his church throughout the last days. Not just in the beginning of the last days, but all the way through the last days. Not just going to stop. Acts 2 marks the beginning of the church when the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples in the form of tongues of fire. That's weird. It is weird. It just is. You know what? God's weird sometimes. He just is. I think sometimes he does stuff like that just to make us get over ourselves. Right? Look at Acts 2, verse 1 through 6. I'm going to read it for you. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all, these are the disciples, Jesus is resurrected, he's ascended, they're gathering together, and they're all together in one place. And the day of Pentecost was 50 days after, there's a lot of prophecy and a lot of stuff surrounding Pentecost, but 
Follow me. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so many are amazed, like, how do they know my language, right? But others mocked them, and they're like, well, they're drunk. They must be drunk. And so some, some interpretation was needed here for them to understand what's happening, right? And so Peter one of the disciples boldly steps up and he gives them some interpretation for what's happening. Acts 2, verse 14. Peter says this. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, which is the other disciples, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Some people are like, that doesn't matter, whatever, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, so he's about to quote an Old Testament prophecy. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just the apostles. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. That great and magnificent day. That's the perfect when it comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is this not the time frame in which we live now? So there's a lot going on here, and yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Like God doesn't always do things according to our preferences or comfort level, clearly. The bottom line here then is that, the, that God's gift of his spirit is poured out upon all who call upon his name, not just the apostles, not just the early church. This didn't stop in the first century. It continues through the last days until the perfect king and his perfect kingdom comes. There are books Thick books filled with even contemporary examples of signs, wonders, miracles, things moving. We've got a, I can give you a few of them just in our community right here. But that's not the point. The point isn't about the fact that the supernatural is real and then you get caught up in like idolizing that stuff because the point is the gospel. The point is Jesus. Okay? And so in some ways, Again, he has come in some ways to us fully spiritually, and in some ways his kingdom is breaking through even now, but not yet in its fullness. And so we live in the overlap, the already but not yet. And so the entire reason God has not come back to earth is because he still has lost children that he desires to come to salvation. You want to know what the secret of life is? You want to know what the whole point of this whole thing is? It's about reaching those who are far from God through Jesus Christ. 
That's what it is. You see, part of the power of Pentecost, follow this, and those strange like tongues of fire, part of that is the redemption of the Tower of Babel. Remember in Genesis 11, there's this story way back, way long time ago, not long after God repopulates the earth through Noah after the flood, and we're told that the whole earth had one language and spoke the same words. And they began to build a city and a tower via this ancient ziggurat, this like megalithic structure with its top in the heavens in order to, quote, make a name for themselves. And so they're trying to reach heaven in their own strength. You see this? Trying to get to God for their own glory. But that's not how we get to heaven, is it? That's the epitome of self-righteous, works-oriented, works-righteous religion. No amount of work or striving can bring us closer to God. God must come to us. We don't come to God. He comes to us. Heaven must come down to us. And so God then confused their languages and dispersed them over the face of the earth. And so their mission had become self-centered, self-glorifying, and they were building their own kingdom in order to attain heaven. Their unity was based upon selfish ambition to attain God. And God disunified them by confusing their language and sent them all over the earth. Fast forward thousands of years and God gives a dream to a man named Jacob. And in this dream, he has this vision of another ziggurat, megalithic structure, like a ladder or staircase coming down from heaven to earth, and angels are ascending and descending on it. Not earth coming to heaven, but heaven coming down to earth. Big difference. It's a strange passage, man, and it's like, we read that, and you're like, what was that? I don't know. Seems interesting. No more commentary on it until John Chapter 1, verse 51, where Jesus references it and says this. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. So he's calling the disciples, actually, at this point. And he tells them, he's right out of the gate. He says, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. They would have immediately thought of that vision from Jacob. In other words, he is the one through whom heaven comes to earth. We don't get to heaven, but heaven has come to us in Jesus Christ. So we don't arrogantly claim that we have found the only way to heaven through Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We humbly testify, though, that heaven has found the only way to us through Jesus Christ. Big difference. Big difference. In Acts 2, those who are in Christ Jesus, they're suddenly empowered to take this gospel then to all nations, to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. By the power of the Spirit of God, they are taking this gospel of redemption to the disinherited nations who had no access to it before. Something is different now. And so the only real reason Jesus hasn't returned is that he's not waiting for you to accomplish all the things you want to accomplish in this life. Let me say that again. Like if you're going, like if you were like, okay, Jesus is coming back tomorrow and you're like, wait, no, I haven't done this, this, and this. Unless that's sharing the gospel with a bunch of people, 
you've missed the point. Right? So, so, like, he's not waiting for you to accomplish all the things you want to accomplish in this life before returning. That's not the reason he hasn't come back yet. The reason he hasn't come back yet isn't so you can get married or have kids or get that earthly experience you've always wanted. All of that is worthless in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed. So why doesn't he just come back now? One reason. There are still lost children that he desires to redeem. That's it. That's why this is the top priority of all creation right now. That's it. The only reason he hasn't returned and brought the full glory of the kingdom to bear upon this world is because the Great Commission has not been completed. So to reach every tribe, tongue, and nation, to redeem the disinherited nations, that is our unified purpose. That is the redemption of Babel. You see it? That's what's going on. Our purpose isn't to build a great ziggurat to reach heaven. Our commission is to build the church of Jesus Christ through which heaven invades the earth. And so that unity, he's saying the thing that was the barrier is no longer even a barrier anymore. That's what Acts 2 is talking about. That's what's being portrayed And so for this, we leverage our time, our talent, our treasure. We look to his presence and his power to accomplish it because this is the priority of eternity and it's fueled again by his presence, his power, and it's about relying upon his all-sufficient grace to accomplish it because he's the one that's going to do it. We've just been invited to participate. And what an honor. And so it's not about our own independent capacity to measure up to it. It's about becoming sensitive to his leading in it because he's the one that converts. He's the one that convinces. He's the one that saves. He's the one that redeems. He's the one that calls people to catch a glimpse of this. And there are some of you who are in this room who are going to hear this and it's going to go in one ear and out the other and you're going to go back to building your own kingdoms and completely forget about the kingdom of heaven. And you're going to get sucked right back into the ways of this world. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm here for it. We are here to be patient with this, but you're going to hear this reminder week in and week out. And he, love bears with all people, bears all things, right? Like this is part of what he does. Like I'm so thankful that love does not insist on its own way. I'm so thankful that he's patient with me to get this. And even when I lose sight of it, he's patient enough to remind and remember, help me remember what it's all about. And so with this hope of glory in mind, Paul writes to those in these last days in 1 Corinthians 14.1. And he says this. Pursue love. He said this a lot. He says it again. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Again, it's all about love. It's all... It's about considering others before yourself. So the warning here and throughout this next chapter is against isolation and spiritual elitism, which is why... Love is ultimately the remedy for all of this. And so I want to mention here also that I I grew up around cessationism. This is not something that's just like a, you know, people are like, well, you were trained one way and other people were trained a different way and blah, blah, blah. No, I grew up in it, 100%. I know many people that stand in this cessationist 
belief system and, 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 and love many of them who still hold this position. Although, at this point, I will say that most of them hold it apprehensively. Many of them admit even that the only reason that they still lean into that way is because the power of God makes them uncomfortable. I hear that a lot, which is, of course, a heart issue. It's a trust issue. It's not our true truth issue, right? All that to say that cessationism doesn't disqualify people as Christians. I'm going to say that again. If someone you know, or maybe you're in here and you have adhered to that system, I want you to understand and hear me that I'm not saying you're not a Christian, okay? Nor would I refuse someone full partnership into our church if they took that stance. I do believe it's an issue that matters, but I would put it in a secondary category, meaning it does not mean you're not a believer. And so I would be willing and, and you know, I'd consider it an honor to, be, to patiently walk through these, this journey, not in a divisive manner with people who are kind of trying to figure all of that out, okay? Um, and so I also want to say here that when it talks about prophecy, that prophecy doesn't necessarily mean that you're foretelling the future. That's often the way that the world thinks of it, like psychics and all this other like, new age stuff. Prophecy doesn't necessarily mean you're foretelling the future. To prophesy means to put what God has impressed upon you into human words. And so when you put them into human words, that means you can also miss it. That means you can mess it up. Which is another reason why a lot of people are like, well, let's just not go there at all. Because if you can mess it up, then how do we know what we can trust and what we can't? That's why we do have the Bible. And we are to lean into him. And so if for someone who is a perfectionist or hypercritical, this can be like an anxiety fest. But not to the humble heart who trusts in a sovereign king. This requires us to lean in to his word and his spirit, to do this well and to do, pursue love in the midst of it because many have missed or even insisted on their own way and misused and abused things like prophecy. And then, of course, it gets dismissed as irrelevant and even despised by developing a man-made system like cessationism to justify disobedience to God's word. And I would say that's what it is. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21, it says this, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Okay? We're seeing in part it's dim and we can easily miss it because of our limitations. And so we never say things like, thus saith the Lord, and then what follows, right? As though you are like speaking God's direct message. You hold it like this and you say, hey, I feel like God is, I, I've been praying for you and I feel like God just wants to encourage you in this way. And maybe that's just an encouragement. It's like, great. Maybe it's actually a prophetic experience. Um, it, it, we don't need to make it a huge flashy deal. If it's not from God, it'll be clear, right? If it is from God, you'll know. If it's not, then you can just let it go. Either way, we hold it with an open hand and we weigh everything against the ultimate measure and authority of Scripture. We test everything against the character and ways of God as revealed in His complete and all-sufficient Scriptures. The first time that I ever experienced um, prophecy actually happened uh, when I was in college, my sophomore year of college. I had grown up, like I said, in an environment where it was like, this is not a thing. And one night... Um, I was struggling with uh, <laughs> inferiority. Um, I had 
I was struggling with some of the, my classes that I was taking, and uh, a girl I liked didn't like me and ended up liking my, uh, one of my close friends, and I was like, seriously, him? You know, one of those things. <laughs> um, and I, I, I ended up just, I was just struggling. It was one of those just really low points, and, and I also couldn't seemed, I just, it was like I didn't know the Bible, like all of, I was a new believer, I, I, I just didn't know, I wanted to know the scriptures, just feeling inferior to the people that like just were spouting out truths that they'd grown up with, and I'm like, I have no, I'm just feeling inferior, so I go to this concert, it was like a Christian concert near campus, like a hundred people, maybe more, and we, we go into this room, a warehouse, and um, you know, the the guy who's leading worship, he just says, hey, if you're struggling with anything tonight, um, would you just come down and just, this is an opportunity, just lay it before the Lord. Just lay it right down and just come forward and, and pray and lay, leave it before God. So I get up, I mean, like, I honestly, I wasn't going to go forward at all, but I also didn't want to be the only person left in the chairs, right? So I get up with everybody, and I remember coming down, and I remember just standing there, and I'm like hands in my pockets, like I'm just typical, you know, just kind of jaded about life, and just, and I just remember praying, God, I'm feeling inferior. Show me what you think of me. Whew! That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. So I go back to my seat, and this guy, <laughs> he's in the back, and he's watching me, and I, I kind of feel his eyes on me, I'm kind of like, what are you looking at me for? And I'm sitting there, and he literally, like, comes straight to me, he's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, he taps me on the shoulder, and he's going, hey, can I, can I pray for you? And I'm like, yeah, all right, sure. I'm thinking, this is going to be weird. So we go in the back, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, um, quote, I, I, I just, I feel like, I was praying for you, I felt like God wanted me to pray for you, and I feel like as I was praying for you, I just feel like God wants to, <sighs> he wants, he wants to say the words of man hold no weight in the kingdom of heaven, and do not let inferiority hold you back from the leader he's calling you to be in his church. And I, now, this gets me because it was the first time anything like this had happened to me. It's happened countless times since then. And even both ways. Like I've, God has allowed me to take part on the other side, which is the thing he's calling us to do, is to, to, to tap into his heart for other people. But it was like, it all was like, this is, this is real. I'm going, how did you know that? And he, he goes, he goes, that about right? That's what he said. That about right? And I said, you have no idea. And he goes, I think I do. And he just hugs me. That was it. Okay? Like I said, it's happened so much since then. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, because this is another piece to this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up here. In my mind, I'm thinking... That guy, he must, is he an angel? Like, where does he live? Like, is he just going to disappear? He must be like the most super, super heroic Christian there has ever been on the planet. Okay? A few years later, we had a church meeting, and he was in our church. And he stands up, same guy, and on, um, and, he, and he confesses a deep sexual sin that he was indulging that very night. And I was going, the first thing I thought was, 
God, he hugged me. Ugh. He hugged me, and God just, I mean, wrecked me and goes, no, I hugged you. He was obedient in that moment, and it has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with me, and my grace is sufficient even for him. It doesn't mean that he's, he's struggling. He, the fact that humility, to confess that before the church and the church embraced him, it actually speaks to his faith and his victory over that struggle. Praise God. Right? But it taught me so much. Guys, it ain't about you. It's not about me. God will speak through a donkey if he has to. He's calling us to faithful obedience, to lean into the whispers. I'm going to close with this. There's a passage in 1 Kings 19, and it's about Elijah, the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. This is what our kids are learning downstairs. And in, in 1 Kings, it tells us about how the prophet Elijah, he's journeying to a mountain to wait to meet with God there. God calls him. He says, I'm going to meet with you. I want to speak to you. He goes up the mountain, and it says this in 1 Kings 19, verse 11 through 12. It says, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and the earthquake, or, or and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now, if, at this point, if I'm Elijah, I'm going, well, God, you brought me here. I'm looking for you in all this extravagant stuff. And after that, or after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And that's where God meets him. In the stillness. The Hebrew is a hard thing to translate. It's like this small stillness is where God spoke to him. It wasn't in the fire. It wasn't in the earthquake. It wasn't in the flashy extravagance. It was in the stillness. This is not about chasing one power encounter after another. This is about living a continual life of prayer in the Spirit of God. This is about relationally diving into who He's called us to be, soaking in His Word so that we can measure what these things are and know this is the character of God. This is the ways of God. This is how He is. And that is, it is just like God to meet you in that place of, of, of humility and need. That has got Jesus written all over it, right? And to know that, and this is how we test it. And so we immerse ourselves not just in information, but communion with him. We don't just read the scriptures in order to learn. We read the scriptures in order to commune, and we pray, and we ask God to help apply what we're reading to our lives, not just to increase our information so we can argue better points but to fall deeper in love and to become more sensitive to his leading throughout life. And then to act upon what he loves, which is his people and his commission. And so we pray for each other and we consider others before ourselves, which is what that guy was doing that night. And this is how God moves. I'm thankful for it. The only way we can be of any earthly good is if we truly are continually heavenly-minded, which means leaning into the whispers of heaven. Even now, he is speaking to you. He is alive. 
when we read our Bibles, I pray that the breath of the Holy Spirit would blow our hair back and that he would direct our every steps as his kingdom goes forth in and through our church. In Virginia Beach, as it is in heaven. Let's pray.